This is Purple Radio On Demand. Some of us will know this man for moments like this. There it is. Double hundred. Warren tried him with the flipper and Nasser Hussain got it away behind point quite beautifully. Others more recently for ones like this. What an innings, what a player. The Ashes well and truly alive because of one cricketer. And that cricketer is Benjamin Stokes. And in an extraordinary exclusive interview, we got the chance to chat about everything. From debuts. I had a picture of David Gower, he was my childhood hero, so could you imagine six months, a year later, when they announced the side and David's not going on that trip, and I am, um, it was like unbelievable. And then not only am I doing that, I'm playing against the greatest, one of the greatest sides that's ever played the game. Captaincy and man management. It's so, so easy but wrong just to try and captain 10 yes men or women. You know, that's not your job as captain. Your job as captain is to get the best out of difficult characters. And go behind the scenes to find out what really goes on in the commentary box. He gets bored by nine o'clock and he starts putting your shoes in the freezer and things like that, you know. And so, so much more. An incredible and frankly ridiculous privilege to be speaking to one of England cricket's greatest ever captains and one of sport's most articulate, seminal, and authoritative broadcasting voices. I'm Will Hobbs and this is Heads and Tails with Nasser Hussain. Enjoy. Nasser Hussain, thank you so much for joining us today on this podcast, Heads and Tails. How are you doing? Where are you and, and what are you doing? I'm good. I'm in Dubai. I'm in my hotel room in Dubai. Sorry, I'm on my phone as opposed to my laptop. I'm not very good with technology, so I couldn't get Zoom up on my laptop. I'm in quarantine for six days before the world T20. So six days in my room in isolation. Great fun. Yeah, brilliant. I mean, when you're not doing podcasts, what do you like to get up to in, in quarantine? How do you pass the time? I don't, I don't do many podcasts, actually. I've just jumped off um, a couple of films. Papillon, I've been watching that um, and just prepping. What I do is, you know, I've had some time with the family since the end of the season. Bob Willis Trophy finished a couple of weeks ago. And I knew I was going to have six days here to do any prep. So pretty much tomorrow, I'll probably watch the football in about an hour's time. Um, I think it's Liverpool-Watford. And then uh, from tomorrow, I'll probably start prepping for the World T20. Nice. And let's let's go back to lockdown only very briefly, because you, for, for a large part of your life, have been travelling all around the world, kind of all year round as a cricketer and a broadcaster. And during lockdown, you know, a lot of people took comfort in watching, you know, Hemsworth and Hiddleston on, on Disney+. Plus. Others went to the Sky Sports vodcast for Key and Hussain. Um, <laughs> but was, was it really nice, in a, in a sense, to just spend a long period of time at home with the family, having spent so much time just travelling around the world in normal life? Yeah, not so much with Rob Key from my um, reading room or whatever it is, where I have all my make-believe books that I have behind me. So I spent far too much time with Keezy. Uh, it was sort of nice. Obviously, I felt for my kids. They're, a couple of them are a similar age to you. One's uh, at Exeter, one's now at Nottingham Uni. So I don't know how it hit you lot at university, but, you know, my boys had looked forward or one of them had looked forward to going down there. And then suddenly everything, the rugs pulled from beneath your feet and you're back, back home with your ageing mum and dad instead of being in a pub in Exeter or whatever. So um, it probably hit them harder, really. But 
Um, you know, I'm sure it hit a lot of people harder than it hit me. You know, luckily we still had things to do. It kept me going actually doing those vodcasts and podcasts with Keezy. Um, it just gave a little bit of sort of routine to your days really. So, and then luckily the cricket, thanks to the cricketers, they started putting themselves in bubbles uh, and cricket came back on our screens. Yeah. And we're really grateful to the cricketers and to you guys because you kept a lot of us going, us cricket badgers. Um, <laughs> thanks for that. I want to go back to, to your kind of childhood. You began in Chennai, went to Chelmsford. That's an incredible kind of transition so early on in your life. Can you just talk me through how you fell in love with cricket, your family environment, having older siblings, and just, yeah, your, your first steps in, in life and in cricket? I mean, I was, my dad was a cricket badger, as you call it, rightly. Um, you know, he was, we were brought up in Chennai and we were at the Chepok Stadium where the Chennai Super Kings play, where England played their test matches on their recent tour. Um, I've been back actually before I went to university to Durham. I went back there for four months and played some cricket at Chennai. Um, and we just spent our time on the outfield. My dad would be playing uh, or he'd be in the, in the bar holding court and having a whiskey. And me and my brothers used to be on the outfield playing a bit of cricket. And then my dad and my mum, uh, my mum's English, born in Cornwall, mainly for our education, really, moved to England. Uh, and we lived with our uncle in Ilford for a while. And then it was pretty similar there as well. We ended up, my dad ended up running and owning the Ilford Cricket School. So the Chepok Stadium, Chennai, um, was swapped for the Ilford Cricket School in Ilford. And I spent all my formative years down there playing cricket with my brothers and you spent a lot of time bowling leg spin yeah and myself and Michael Atherton ended up playing England schoolboys bowling leg spin together um, opened the bowling against Scotland under 15s uh, he was a bit better batter but then I got the yips with my leg spin um, I literally could not land it or if I did land it it bounced three or four times or into the side netting and my old man said well this is not good enough. You're going to have to take up batting. So I batted a little bit. I'd be about number eight um, and bowled mainly leg spin. But as I went through, if I wanted to stay in Essex under 16s, under 19s, England under 19s, all that sort of stuff, your batting had to kick on. So I just focused more and more on my batting. That sounds like a massive adjustment to make. You know, you're a leg spinner at 50 and then all of a sudden you've got the ips. Just quickly... How would you define the yips? Was it for you a more a mental thing? I mean, physically as well, you were you were growing a lot at that age. Yeah, yeah, physically, I'd say more than anything. Physically, it leads to mental issues, really. And physically, I shot up in height that year. So your trajectory of trying to land a leg spinner, when you did it, you have to chuck it up in the air and you get loop on it. Um, when you suddenly grow a foot in height, age 15, then your whole trajectory is wrong. Then you start, like literally, like the putting yips where you don't know when to let the putter go. It's the same with your bowling. You don't know when to let the ball go. And then it becomes a mental issue, you know. And also cricket is quite a cruel game, batting and bowling. You are exposed. It's not like football, you know, you can put a bad pass in and someone, you know, on your side uh, gets you out of trouble. In cricket, get a first ball duck, it's a long way to go. And when you're bowling it and everyone's watching and you were the sort of England's star growing up, England's schoolboy star, when suddenly it's literally going in the roof of the net, um, you are exposed. So it nearly got to a stage where, you know, I thought, do I really need all this? Um, but, you know, luckily it's a good lesson for everyone out there. I mean, mainly in cricket, but keep two or three strings to your bow. Kevin Peterson, when we played against him, was batting number nine and bowling off spin. 
and he ended up being a pretty good batsman, didn't he? I was just about to mention Kevin, and I think Stuart Broad's another one who batted a lot through school. Monty Panasar started out as a fast bowler. I mean, it, it seems to be something in cricket, doesn't it, that you, you can almost mature quite late on or, or anyway, much later than you think as, as people that age. You know, we think at 13, 14, right, he's a batsman and, and he's, he's set at that age. But you can develop much younger as a, as a cricketer, it seems. You can, and that there's a lesson there for everyone, the cricketer themselves, the parents, um, county age groups, not to pigeonhole people, academies, not to try and get people out of the system too early, um, play different sports as well. You know, I'm still here. I think A.B. de Villiers is still in this hotel. He's checking out tomorrow because he's been here with the IPL and he played all sorts of sports growing up. You look at Owen Morgan, you look at Joss Butler, you look at Kevin himself when we did the doco, on Kev, Kev talks a lot about squash and that switch hit he got he got from playing squash when he was young. So not just do different things in your game, but try and do as many different sports as possible. Great. And I was about to ask kind of just around that little section off, what makes a healthy sporting upbringing? And you've, you've kind of answered that with just keep lots of strings to your bow and, and play lots of sports. I mean, as a sporting parent, how does, does your upbringing and, and your journey... How does that affect what you you do now as a, as a coach of kids and as a parent? Yeah, I'd probably say I, I probably exaggerated it over time. Actually, my my dad wasn't a pushy dad at all, but my dad wanted me to play cricket, and you know the day was driven by cricket and success or failure. So if I'd had a good day, it was a good day for the family, if you know what I mean. And a bad day, there were silent journeys home from wherever. So um, which I didn't mind. It's you know made me a tougher cricketer, made me value every single game of cricket and it made me the cricketer I was I ended up playing for England and captaining England so I'm very appreciative of that but um, I think it's that balance you have to get that you have to push your kids or when you're coaching them it can't just be you know it's it's just a game I'm, I'm I'm not of that opinion it's just a game you know but you have to try and make them think that it's not the end of the world if you do fail you know so it's that balance and the best cricketers I've played with, actually, whether it be, I didn't play with Peterson that much, but whether it be Peterson or Gooch or Goff, uh, Atherton, Thorpe, people like that, got that balance right where they realised it is really important, but also there are far more important things in, in life as well. So it's trying to get that mental balance right. And you became an England cricketer at the start of the 90s and people make a big thing about England cricket in the 90s. As a young cricketer coming into that side, what was that experience? What kind of side were you coming into at that stage? Coming, hey, I was coming into a side full of my heroes like Graham Gooch and Alan Lamb, but I was also replacing my hero in David Gower. I mean, you're at Durham now, you're at Collingwood. I was at Hilden Bead, and I'm sad enough to say that somewhere in my walls at Hilden Bead, I had a had a picture of David Gower. He was my childhood hero. So, could you imagine? six months a year later when they announced the side and David's not going on that trip and I am um, it was like unbelievable and then not only am I doing that I'm playing against the greatest one of the greatest sides that's ever played the game in that West Indies side so I'm stood there at short leg and Desmond Haynes and Gordon Greenwich come out to bat we get one of them out Devon runs Greenwich out um, and Viv Richards strolls out to bat and I'm still at short leg and you know, you go out to bat and Patrick Patterson's bowling the first ball at you at Sabina Park, uh, the speed of light, Malcolm Marshall at Kirtley Ambrose. It was Ian Bishop got me out for 13, caught behind. I'm now working 
with Bish. Does he um, talk about that in the in the box? I, I do. He doesn't. I mean, for me, it was a big moment. Ian Bishop getting me out was like, really? Did I get you out? I don't really care. <laughs> to be honest. But for me, it was a massive moment. He got, you know, it was my first uh, dismissal in Test match cricket. So, um, no, it was it was really was pinch yourself time. You know, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I think some people, you know, believe they're going to go and play for England. For me, it was literally Essex, Essex under 11s, under 15s, England schoolboys, Essex contract, Essex first team. And then suddenly Graham Gooch is sort of tapping you on the shoulder saying, you want to play for England? Unbelievable. And how do you think making a debut then is different to making a debut now in terms of like, we're going to touch on team culture uh, in a bit, but I I just find as as a cricket fan who's really kind of examined England cricket in the last 10 years, even in that period, you know, the, the cultural changes and, and cultural emphases are huge. So, like, how does your debut kind of differ from someone who, say, would make their debut in the Ashes in terms of coming into a new environment? I would say, like, I mean, it happens a lot faster back then in both directions. You come in quicker, as I say, six months after playing for Durham against York Uni, I'm playing for England or a year later. I don't think that happens as much now. There's a much gradual pathway and they call it the pathway all the way up from you know schoolboy level uh, levels there's also a team structures lions structures and even after that if you're if you're if they think you might play for england they have you in and around the team not so much well actually they have in the last year because of bubbles they'll introduce people to those bubbles that they think may play in in the next year or so so there's a much more gradual uh introduction now but it's also in the other side of it, in those days, because there weren't central contracts, you played, you had two or three bad games and you were axed. I mean, literally, I would listen to Radio 5 live at five past the hour. And if they went from Hick to Illingworth, because they always announced the side alphabetically, if they went from Hick to Illingworth, I knew I wasn't going to go and play in the next test match. But if they went from Hick, Hussein Illingworth, then I was going to go and play. So um, that's how we found out. Whereas now, you play for, you know, you see the lads, they get six, seven, eight, nine test matches. They have central contracts and it's absolutely the right thing to do. When you have confidence in your place and you play for a team, uh, you play that much better. And you became captain sort of eight, nine years after your debut. I think that's right. And when you speak about captaincy, I, I heard an interview you did with Harsha Bogle in lockdown it seemed to me that you were kind of always thinking about captaincy and you, you captain that side at under 15s, I think England schools was captaincy always in your mind. And were you thinking about it when you weren't captain of England? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about being captain of England. That never entered my radar at all. Never thought about that at all at any stage in my career. You, you just don't think it's just a remarkable when David Graveney rings you up and says, would you like to captain England? This is just so much off my radar. You know, I'm ringing my dad up and all those sacrifices he made bringing us to England and saying that they want me to captain England, dad. You can imagine the sort of tearful conversation that was. Um, but you're right in that while I was playing, I always had captaincy thoughts. So I was lucky enough to play under some very fine captains, whether it be Keith Fletcher at Essex, who captained spin brilliantly, who's man management of a team that were full of individuals at Essex, the likes of Ray East and Brian Hardy and John Lever and Stuart Turner, Derek Pringle, Neil Foster, Don Topley. There were ructions all over the place 
in the dressing room. But the moment that Essex side stepped over the line, Keith Fletcher just got them together as a unit. And then you had Graham Gooch, who led by ex example, Michael Atherton, who was about as loyal a bloke as you can get. Um, Alex Stewart, who I thought a bit of a hard done by deal, actually. You know, he beat South Africa under him. So um, I tried to learn from all of those people, but also when I was in the field, it can be a long day in the field if you're not thinking about what would you do? How can you all, I think Brearley said in his book, as a captain, you've always got to feel like you can impact the game somehow. So always have a thought process. How am I going to impact this game? And while you were captain, did you use those voices as kind of sounding boards? I mean, you played with Atherton when you were captain, but did you, did you tap into to Mike Brearley? during your career? I, uh, I didn't tap into Breers that much. I read Breers' book, The Art of Captaincy, uh, and, his, like, and his management of both of them and people like that, how he dealt with individuals, the psychology of captaining people. I found his book. I spoke to Mike a few times. He used to text me or ring me occasionally. He's a brilliant man. Uh, and I was lucky. So you just, you know, Athers was just, you just, I was stood there. I tried to distance myself away from previous captains on the field. You don't want to be stood at slip with Stuart as keeper, Atherton first slip, your second slip, and they're full of ideas. And you're like, I want to go with my own gut feel. If I'm going to get it wrong, let me get it wrong with my gut feel. So I used to stand at mid-off and chat with the bowler, but make no mistake, often, usually with a rum and coke or a glass of Chardonnay in my hand, we would, uh, of an evening, sit with Athers or Alec or Gucci or someone and have a chat about, the direction we were going in as a team and as a captain. So they were your influences, but what did you want to bring specifically as an England captain when you got the call? I guess it was more, it was a conversation I had. I mean, I'd never met Duncan Fletcher, so this was a new meeting for me. And I met him at Lords for the first time when we both got the job. And his initial comment to me, he said two things to me, actually. He said, one, Nass, we're going to work together for a long time, hopefully, I want complete loyalty from you. You'll get complete loyalty from me. So that whenever we're in the public, however much we've argued about tactics or a player or whatever, we are going to be singing from the same hymn sheet. And I always remember that. And I found it hard as a broadcaster because eventually I'd have to criticise some of Fletcher's tactics when they lost 5-0 in an Ashes series. But the other thing he said stuck with me. So he, he turned to me and he said, listen, you lot are not the best side in the world, um, but you're certainly not the worst. And we were when I took over or soon after we were officially the worst side test match side in the world. And we had to work out why was that with 18 first class counties and everything that we've got going for us. And why are we the worst side in the world? <clears throat> and I think we just needed to we needed to toughen up a little bit. We, we needed we needed central contracts. We needed to belong to the England cricket team before central contracts. We were a group of individuals that played for our counties. And would turn up and occasionally play for this thing, you know, England and get get Lammy would give you his Bolle sunglasses and Robin Smith would give you the Oakley sunglasses and you'd get a grand per test match. And then you'd, like I say, listen to Radio 5 the next week and see if you were, who you're playing. But you were predominantly a county player. And what I wanted to change in central contracts massively helped was I wanted everyone to feel that England cricket team is their main team. That's what it's all about. It's a little bit like football has been, not recently, but before that. If you ask fans and footballers, what's the most important thing? It's the Premier League. And occasionally they play for England in these you know, weeks off or whatever. And that's what cricket was like. It was like counties was the most important. 
and we had to change that culture. And was David Lloyd, was Bumble a big advocate of central contracts and how much of a role did he have to play in that becoming a reality? He was, he was the man that started pushing the ECB, definitely. But you can only do it almost, A, from a position of strength and Bumble ne- never really found himself in a position of strength. But B, also, I was lucky that McLaurin came in and Duncan as well. You know, Duncan was very stubborn with the counties. One of these great things, Duncan, was, and this is nothing about Bumble in any way, but Duncan wasn't afraid of upsetting counties. So often, you know, Bumble would ask for Fraser or Malcolm or whoever to be rested, but they didn't have a central contract with the board. So he had no control. So once we got that control of Goff and Caddick and Cork and White and Giles and Tufnell, then... Duncan, when the counties came asking, can Caddick play this week for Somerset? It's a massive game. Duncan would just turn around to him and say, no, you're not having him. <clears throat> and was very, very stubborn about that. And it led to it led to us becoming a more difficult side to beat. Yeah, that's awesome. I guess look back on your captaincy, I mean, I just kind of looked up the, the record of captains previous to you and the five captains that preceded you lost more tests than they won. You won 17 tests, lost 15. And then following you, Michael Vaughan and his sides produced some of the most memorable pieces of cricket, you know, known to English fans. Do you almost look back and think you built a platform or a Platt Vaughan, if you like? Um, yeah, I just did what I could do, really. I mean, I, I, we had to stop ourselves from losing. We had to make ourselves a difficult side to beat. So, you know, it's like a football comparison. And the sides we were playing then as well, just... I'm not comparing eras, but if you look at the sides that we were playing then, and before me I'm talking about, and Atherton and Stewart and Gooch and people like that, there was no easy games of cricket. You played West Indies, they had those that bowling attack, or Viv or Desmond or Gordon Greenwich or whatever. You played India and they had Sachin and Rahul and BBS and Ganguly and Sewag. Kumble, you know, Wazim, Wakar, Pakistan, you know, the Pollock, Donald, it just goes on. Australia, obviously, what a side they had. So it, there were no easy games. I never judge people before me on their record because everything was tough for them. So, but we just had to go on a run and we were lucky enough to go on that run. Where I, it, The football analogy is you're going to Man City. We just, we can't go there and try and beat them 5 0 and go five men up front. We're going to have to sit in. And Nick won at the end. And that's what we did. Pakistan, in the gloom and the dark, we drew two games with turgid cricket. And then when we had the opportunity to pounce, we went and pounced and we beat them. Same in Sri Lanka. We lost the first one in Gaul. And then we realised if we have a plan for Murley, Murley's going to get five wickets against us. He'll probably get 10 in the match against us. But make him bowl 100 overs in the game to do that and we'll score at the other end and we'll get enough runs to bowl them out and win the test. So we just got, we just planned a little bit better. We just became a more difficult side to beat. And then, what you know, I was done after Zimbabwe fiasco and World Cup fiasco. There's only so long shelf life of a captain. I was done and England needed a captain to express, let the team, they were being shouted at by me and Fletcher for a long time. Now you need to go out and express yourself. And Vaughan's captaincy was just brilliant at that. What was his nickname? Um, uh, velvet iron fist in a velvet glove, you know, and that sums him up really well. You know, while we were all hiding behind our sofas in 2005, saying, Please, Kevin, you know, get that 100 at the Oval, 
Michael Vaughan seemed on the outside so cool and calm. And that translated to his team that in the highest pressure situation, that Vaughan team delivered. Yeah. And Owen Morgan, you mentioned him being someone who exudes confidence, but also courtesy, especially in press conferences. And I remember you speaking to Harsha about how he dealt with the press, even when England were under serious pressure in that World Cup. Do you think kind of that exterior as a captain is so vital for, for players and fans? Absolutely. And it, or it goes back to that comment that you, I made about Fletcher and loyalty and being together. You'll be amazed, not just media fans, but players. They've always got their eye on you. They've always in a dressing room when you're in the corner talking to the coach. Make no mistake, these players are just like me and you. They'll sit there going, is he talking about me? Is my place up for grabs? Have I done something wrong here? So it's the timing when you have your chats, how you have your chats, what you say in a media. Now, I was different. I was fiery. Players also won't fall for falseness. So they would not have fallen for me being trying to be a cool, calm, calculator. I'm just not that. I, had a, I was an angry youth and I had shouted at people. And in the same way, they won't fall for Morgan and Vaughan trying to be something they're not. So I think Owen Morgan's, you know, like I said to him when they were bowled out in 45 overs at the Aegeus Bowl, I did a, pre a, a presentation with him and Mikey Holding and Ian Smith upstairs were saying, what a joke being bowled out in 45 overs. Basic rule of a 50-over game, back the overs. I put that to Morgs, and Morgs just went, nonsense. That's old school. We are now playing different. We are just going to go from ball one, and if we're bowled out in 40 overs, we go again. And, you know, history tells you that with that World Cup win, I think he got it pretty much spot on. Be yourself, I think, is what I'm Yeah, thinking. Yeah, if you're trying to change a culture as well. You know, I was trying to change the culture of a test match team. Morgan trying to change and did change the culture of our white ball cricket. You can't, even though however much you're doubting yourself within, and I'm sure Morgan was doubting himself and has doubted himself, on the outside, he never, ever shows that, ever. On any subject, I've never seen Morgan doubt himself. Yeah, he owns every decision, doesn't he? And I remember you having a discussion on one of these podcasts about Alex Hales. Um, and I remember you disagreeing with with Morgan's decision saying Hales has missed enough now. He's he's almost done his time, if you like. But Morgan's resolute. I'm just wondering about that team culture, because you, you talk about a critical mass um, that you tried to establish with Duncan Fletcher, because you had your Flintoffs, who were brash, but also match winners. But you needed the likes of Collingwood and, and Giles to, to solidify that that positive ethic, I guess. So what is the balance between picking your best players and also picking a critical mass that will toe the line that you're trying to set as a captain? Oh, good question. Very good question. I would say basically err on the side of brilliance. You know, it's so, so easy but wrong just to try and captain 10 yes men or women. You know, that's not your job as captain. Your job as captain is to get the best out of difficult characters. And I'm afraid in cricket, like in life, I guess, is a generalisation. But you look at some of the greats of the game, whether it be Lara, Warren, Botham, Peterson, Flintoff, they are greats because they do things differently. They don't adhere to the rules of the normal cricketer. They have such self-belief and, to a degree, brackets, ego, and they have to be out. And that's why I always mention Botham and Really, the only person in the commentary box Beef used to stand up to and say good morning was, was Brearley and Brearley had won him over. So it's winning over as a leader 
those mavericks, how you handle those mavericks. Lara playing golf at the Belfry every morning before he goes and smashes 500 for Warwickshire. Shane Warne being Shane Warne, Freddie being Freddie. So I would err towards having those great players. Um, and you, you've got to have them, but you've got to have them on the inside. You've got to have them on your side because, you know, if you lose one of them, then you're going to start losing the team. And then the critical mass is that those players won't listen all the time to Fletcher and Hussein and Silverwood and, um, and Root and people like that. They'll listen if someone within the team picks them up. And I know Vaughan was very big on this. We have 11 captains and it's a bit of a cliche. But if I say to Freddie, come on, Freddie, we're supposed to be hitting that stump today. He's like, nah, yeah, that's NASA again shouting at me. I don't really care. But if Collingwood or Giles turns to Freddie in the morning of a high pressure test match, and goes, Freddie, any chance of you hitting that stump in training this morning? You know, two things happen. Well, three, Freddie takes it personally. Freddie then will say to Collie or Gilo, you know, Brown knows a teacher's pet, um, you know, all the names. And then when it is Gilo or Collie's turn, they better hit those stumps themselves because they're going to get a volley from Freddie and his mates. And it's not just Freddie, by the way. I'm using him as an example. So it's getting those guys within the team to pull each other up on the direction that we're wanting to go. And it's not as easy as that because you do have to give it a bit of leeway. You do have to, you know, like Beefy, when, when we work at Sky, you, you don't want him in at half eight doing all the analysis that myself or Athers or Ian Ward or Rob Key's doing. He gets bored by nine o'clock and he starts putting your shoes in the freezer and things like that. You know, you, you, you want, you know, you've got to make sure that you give people a little bit of leeway. But how do you do that? How do you let someone off just because they're brilliant? You know, I think for to keep it up to date, I think Sunil Narayan, I, I don't know if you've been watching the IPL, but he's been absolutely brilliant in the IPL. And he's not in the World T20 side for the West Indies because he didn't pass their fitness test. So he didn't get to the level required in the fitness. Now, Sunil Narayan only has to bowl four overs in a World T20 game. So what does it matter about his fitness? But if you let him go, then some other lad who doesn't pass their fitness test, you turn to him and say, well, you're not as good as Sunil Narayan. You, if you fail, then we're not picking you. So there are a lot of grey areas when you let your Mavericks off, when you just say, oh, you're really good, it doesn't matter. You've got to be very careful. But for me, there were some non-negotiables. Timekeeping for me, was absolutely a non-negotiable. You can do whatever you want. Goffey, Dominic Court, Thorpey, Freddie, any of you can do whatever you want, but half nine when we have our tea muddle, you better be there. I don't care if you've had a cup of tea and a biscuit, half nine. That's all I ask of you in the morning is be there for the tea muddle and the chat at half nine. So timekeeping for me, because it's disrespectful to the rest of the team, even if you're two minutes late. Uh, and sometimes I got it too far. I remember Alex Tudor and me still have a laugh about it. We were playing at Durban and I was batting not out overnight. And we were leaving. It was right across the... We had to drive around the block to get to the um, from the hotel to the ground. And it was two minutes to nine. We were supposed to be leaving at nine. And, and, and Tudor wasn't there. And I just told the bus to go. And Tudor came out nine o'clock, bang on nine o'clock to, to meet the bus. And we pulled off to go to Kingsmead. Uh, and start day three of the test match. And Tudor's never forgiven me for that. And timekeeping for me was absolutely vital.
Yes. To be early is to be on time, to be on time, yeah. to, be, to be late. Yeah. 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 Alan Shearer actually says the same thing about broadcasting um, in terms of those levels. And, and, to be, and can I tell you something about Kevin Peterson and all the whispers and everything you heard about Peterson? Because I never played with him. I'm sure he was a difficult guy to play with. We did that doco with Peterson. He was never late for anything. He always used to ask, what do you want me to wear? Where do you want me to be? He was courteous. He was on time for everything. He was well prepped. And if you did say to him, sorry, do you mind if we do half an hour more? Do you mind if we do that again? Um, he, he, would, he, would, he would do it. And I, I found him on, a, on that sort of basis, very, very professional. Yeah, and you wouldn't exactly you wouldn't question Kevin Peterson's dedication or professionalism, but he clearly felt very isolated in in that environment, um, and there clearly was a breakdown. Um, and I know you you studied that very sort of closely. I know you don't like com- comparing eras and comparing captains, but knowing Kevin as you do, would you have handled him slightly differently, or was it in some sense inevitable a, a clash of heads? I think inevitably in the end, it was a clash of heads. And it's, you know, I find it weird that people say, well, Vaughan handled him well in the ashes. It's a completely different Kevin Peterson then. He'd come from uh, South Africa. He was trying to make his way. He'd been given everything in English cricket. He was, that was, he was living the dream. He just got in the England side. That Kevin Peterson then was a lot easier to captain and handle than the Kevin Peterson that Alistair Cook and Andrew Strauss and Andy Flower had to manage because by then he is the maverick, he is the star and his eyes have been turned by million pound or million dollar IPL deals and that is a, that is a nightmare. He was ahead of his time completely, not only on the field but off the field. You look at what they're all doing now, you look at people you talk to now you know, um, you even you talk to some of the younger players, men and women, you talk to them and say, who were your heroes growing up? And Peterson gets mentioned a lot in white ball cricket. They have, a lot of them have geared their game on what Peterson did all those years ago. Yeah, and I feel sorry in that sense for Kevin because you look at the way the IPL is treated now by the ECB and it's almost prioritised for some players. And Kevin was the one who was kind of shouting about that all the time. Oh, no, don't you worry. He's, he's mentioned that a few times. Don't oh, you worry about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure he has. I'm sure he has. Would you call Rob Key a maverick? No. <laughs> I, I would call him an excellent broadcaster. I didn't really know Keezy. When I, I'll pass any cross with one Ashes trip, to be honest. Um, when he when he played really well, he kept getting out of Damian Martin or something. He was a very good player of fast bowling keys. He's a very good player, full stop. Very loyal and trustworthy. I always like this in people. Um, sounds like I'm lecturing here, but but you know, to this day, he won't have a bad word said about Harmson and Flintoff and whatever. They're his mates, and they'll be his mates forever. Um, and I found him a, a breath of fresh air since he's joined us with Sky. Really. He's obviously well, you know, up to date with the modern game. He knows the game. He knows the players. He knows what they're thinking. So when we're talking technique about batting on off stump, and me and Ath and Butch are completely flabbergasted why you'd want to bat on off stump in, when the ball's moving around. He has the ear of the players, and he and he's working with some of the players like Zach Crawley. So he will try and explain why the modern modern player is doing that. And it's something Fletcher said to me. When I got the job, Duncan turned to me and said, great, well done with the Sky job, but just remember in five years' time, 
the game would have mo- is going to move on. There'll be still the basics, but the game is moving on. Make sure you keep up to date with how the game is changing at pace. I mean, you know, the Kevin Peterson switch hit, the fielding catches now on the boundary where they flick it from one to the other, the hitting potential now, likes of Roy and Bairstow and Butler and these guys, the way they hit a cricket ball, that is completely different level from how we used to be able to do it. Amazing. It's almost like a different sport in some sense. It is. White, white ball cricket is like a different sport from, from the white ball cricket we played. And let's talk about Sky, where you went pretty much straight, well, straight after you, you finished playing for England. Describe to me what that transition was like and what media training do players get and how, how equipped did you feel to, to step into that role on telly? I've done a couple of days. I've done one day with Channel 4 for some reason, a final, and I sat there next to Richie Benno and I won't even try and do my Richie impersonation, but after I'd done it, he took me one to one side and he said, oh, really good content. But just one thing, when you're not speaking, put your lip mic down. And I looked at him and said, why? And he's like, if you hold it there, he doesn't know if you're going to speak or not. So every day since then, if you're not speaking, put your lip mic down. Uh, and then I did... Um, something with Sky I did the day at Trent Bridge where it was an absolute pear-shaped I, I, I went up and I borrowed someone's car and I put diesel in or something or petrol in a diesel or something and broke down halfway up there so that was an absolute nightmare and then the day I retired at Lords when I got that 100 and we won and I retired the very next day uh, the boss at Sky Barney Francis rang me up and said we'd like to give you a job on Sky and I was lucky because, that, you know, A, those heroes of mine are there in Gower and Botham. So, I mean, Botham is arguably the greatest England cricketer there's ever been. David Gower, as I said, was my childhood hero. So he's sitting there asking me questions about batting and captaincy. Are you kidding yourself? And then, you know, Bumble, who had worked, brilliant coach, brilliant guy. What you see with Bumble on the telly is, is David Lloyd. The people on TV you see one way. And they behave completely differently when they're away from a camera. Bumble is Bumble. Um, and love working with him. And I've known Athos since England schools under 15s, under 11s, Essex under 11s, Lancashire under 11s. Um, so I had a long chat with him and I've looked at him the way he's behaved as a broadcaster and learned from him. Mikey Holding, who's just announced his retirement. I mean, what a great role model to have in that commentary box. He just sits at the back with his racing post and his laptop out and putting the odd bets in so uh, very lucky to be part of that team really and just learn as you go along yeah it's a pretty all-star lineup isn't it um how uh, as a batsman obviously you're looking to improve all the time as a as a top sportsman and you're analyzing maybe videos you're constantly in the nets as a broadcaster how especially in those early days do you seek to improve Uh, learn from others um, I think we all make the mistake and I'd have hated to have social media. It was probably just starting around about that. I don't know, but I'd have hated to have had it because we all, when you first come in, you speak too much because you've got so much, you know, I'd been in that dressing room with Fletcher and Vaughan and all that team. So I had so much knowledge, whether it be right or wrong knowledge, but had the knowledge um, of what was going on in that dressing room. So I, I probably spoke too much and then you listen to Benno or Atherton or Bumble or Mikey or whatever, and you realise that they don't just waffle on all the time. Try and see areas that, you know, I realise that I quite like the analysis of the game. And luckily at that stage, Barney Francis, the uh, cricket producer, said, right, we're going to have a third man area. 
where you can sit there and analyse the game. I really enjoyed doing that. And it's not for everyone. Mikey doesn't particularly like it or Bumble. You know, they like doing their own thing and bringing their own. You've got to also realise you can't bring everything to that team. It is like a cricket team. You know, Bumble has that great knack of when it's serious, he's blooming serious and he'll get it. And when there's a quiet moment and nothing's happening, he can add humour to it. Mikey's great at calling a moment, you know, the Muhammad Amir, no ball at Lords. I think he just went, wow, or something like that, one word. So I think it's just trying to find your little niche in there, but also sitting and listening. Then you get lucky, like I'm on a World Feed gig here in Dubai, and you work with other broadcasters like Ian Smith, Ian Bishop, and you listen to them call key moments, and you don't know if they've prepped it or not prepped it by the barest of margins. Did that just come from the heart? You know, remember the name. Um, you know, I was with a dinner with Ian Bishop the night before and someone asked him a Q&A like this. Someone said, who should we look out for tomorrow? Give me a name that you won't, we won't look out for tomorrow that we should. And he said, Carlos Brathway. He didn't say remember the name, but he went Carlos Brathway. And I think that's what happened in commentary. And, you know, in fact, I know it because I've speak, spoken to Bishop about it. And Bishop, when he remembered the dinner, dinner the night before and went Carlos Brathway remember the name and um it's that sort of learning from people on how to call key moments really so without making it without making it false really there's there's some good ones around doing it i mean ian smith in that well, i was lucky enough me and bish was sat next to ian smith in that world cup final and, and i think a couple of the england boys have been up to ian smith i know johnny bairstow has and said thank you 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 added to our day by calling it as well as you did. I mean, he absolutely nailed it. That's extraordinary. How did you stay calm? Because I was watching, I watched the video later that I think is. You nice are a cricket badger, aren't you? Oh, you really are. Oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> of, um, he, he was standing up and sort of hammering the desk, and you were just sitting there, just keeping. Sort yeah, of like... because there's a slight difference between lead and uh, colour comm. So lead has to call the moment. And then colour reacts to it. If I was on lead then, like if the camera was on when the Ben Stokes at Headingley or whatever, I was up with Ricky Ponting, sat down a bit calmer. So lead, you have to really get into a little bit. And also what I try and do, and, you know, it's hard being an ex-England player. And it's just try and stay level, as in impartiality, I believe, is absolutely vital still as a broadcaster. Um, so not try and go up and down with how England are doing that day. And I see some go up and down and be almost like cheerleaders for the team. I'm still old school and, and believe that a broadcaster shouldn't be just a cheerleader for the team. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard rugby commentators say exactly the same when they're commentating a World Cup final. You just got to, because once you say us, or we. And I think a lot of football commentators did it during the Euros. I did it this summer and I was really disappointed in myself. Yeah. Warning that Keezy were on comms and they threw to me for a third man slot. And I couldn't believe at the Oval we hadn't bowled Moen Alley for four hours or something. And I just picked up as if I was almost talking to them. I just went, why are we not bowling our spinners here? And then I went, sorry, why aren't England bowling their spinners here or whatever? And it was like, it was just me getting wrapped up in the emotion of... England should be bowling spin here. It's a day four yeah. pitch. And we've, we've got 39-year-old Jimmy Anderson and Chris Wokes, who hasn't bowled for six months, coming in for his eighth spell or whatever. Yeah. So sometimes the emotion gets on top of you and you realise you, you're still an England fan at times. But 
try and keep that to a very bare minimum. Yeah. And you mentioned commentating on your teammates and addressing them you'd just been in. How long did it take for you to be able to speak your mind about those people? Did you find that difficult or did you just kind of go for it and have to reel it back in or how did that feel? I found it okay with players. It, it started well because obviously I came in and, and the team were doing well. So 2004, 2005 with the Ashes. So there was a lot of success. So there wasn't a lot of criticism. I guess the crunch point came in, in, in the series in Australia where they lost 5-0 under Fletcher and Flintoff. That was the difficult one because I go back to that conversation I'd had with Fletcher about loyalty and trust. I'd spent the previous four or five years completely backing Fletcher with everything he did, even though I was having cups of tea with him in his room saying, we're not doing that, Fletch, sorry, but backing him. And then suddenly they're 4-0, 3-0, 4-0, 5-0 defeat. And it's part of your job. But I think the part of your job is, to, and it's very hard again, because a team and a player will go like that. But you, you look at some of like the two most stubborn people in our commentary box, Atherton and Holding, they won't change their mind, whether it's right or wrong. They are very stubborn about certain things. And I think that's quite a good trait as a commentator or a broadcaster, is that if you have an opinion on a player, try and stick with it because it can so easy. They have a bad week and you start criticising or they suddenly become really good and you forget that a month ago you criticised them. So it's very difficult to do, but try and be consistent. If it's a tactic, if it's a plan, if it's a player, if it's a coach, just try and uh, your viewer is not thick. They will remember something you said a month ago and they'll turn to themselves and go, well, weren't you slagging him off a month ago? Why are you suddenly, you know, um, praising him to the rooftops? The badges never miss out on that. <laughs> exactly. You'd, you'd have been sat there with your pen and paper. No <laughs> <laughs> what kind of relationship do you have with the current players as broadcasters? Because obviously in, a, in an interview environment, you've got to be very professional. But do you know these guys off the field? Uh, not too much. I mean, I, I don't and um, I, you know, I'm not a social animal and I don't go out with them. They sometimes are in and around the hotels or whatever. I try to keep clear, try and keep their space because I don't like, never like being two-faced or whatever, you know. I never like criticising them and then going up in the lift or something or well done, bad luck today or whatever. So... I try and keep my space from them, but getting that balance right as well, because, it, you know, for example, Rob Key, I use him as an example, <clears throat> because he's close to the players, he picks up on little snippets from them. Ian Ward's a very good example. Ian Ward, not close to the players, but he communicates well with the players. He's a sounding board in both directions. And you can see the moment any of them come and do an interview with Wardy, they feel very comfortable, very relaxed. Um, and Wardy will ask them a difficult question. They know that, but he, he's won them over. He has their trust or whatever. So I speak to Joe occasionally, Joe Root or whatever. But, um, you know, Graham Thorpe uh, as the batting coach or assistant coach, Collingwood, occasionally will swap texts about tactics or technical things that we disagree on, whatever. But again, it's that balance between not being <clears throat> too far away from them that you don't understand what they're going through but also not being too matey with them that you don't feel you can, you, you know, you can criticise them. Do they watch, presumably they watch a lot of what you say and do. And have you ever had feedback on stuff you've presented and do you get questions? Yeah. yeah. What is that like? Um, yeah. That's all right. As again, as long as 
as long as you're doing it because that's what you know that's what we're paid to do you know we're paid to analyze the game we're not paid to be cheerleaders for the team um so uh, you know you can't live your life as a broadcaster worrying about are you upsetting the players or are you mates with the players or whatever you just got to try and call it how you see it yeah what i wanted to ask you about was i think it's 2002 against india uh, in that odi and there's a very famous interaction between a player and members of the media on the pitch and yeah talk talk us through that sort of episode if you will it was a build-up of me realizing I wasn't the greatest white ball player there's ever been I was batting at three I came back to my room a hotel room like this you put on the highlights the verdict Bob would be absolutely nailing you they'd throw to beefy beefy would absolutely be nailing you for batting at three You'd put your radio on. Jonathan Agnew would be nailing you for batting at three. And half of what they said was probably true. But you can't, when you're a cricketer, you can't be, all right, that's it. I'll pack it in. You got, I was the sort of person who got the papers and listened to the radio and watched the verdict to try and prove people wrong, really. Um, So I was about 20 or 30 not out. And that had been my fault as a white ball cricketer. I'd used up a lot of different deliveries to get to 30 not out. And then I'd give it away because Freddie had to come in or whoever, the big hitters were behind me. So I remember that day thinking to myself, Nash, for once, don't give it away. Get 100. And if you get 100, point to your shirt and give them the three-finger salute to both and Willis and Agnew. So, and I got to 99 and I ran whoever it was, Zahir Khan, down the third man. And I was running past Freddie. And I thought, shall I, shall I not? And I went, what the hell, you know? Um, and Fletcher thought it was a two-finger salute to the media box, and that was it. That would be the end of my captaincy career. So um, that was the sort of, like I say, I was the sort of cricketer I was. I tried to prove people wrong. There are others. Uh, Fletcher himself, Fletcher very rarely read things and listened to things um, because they, you know, that, that would annoy him and affect the way he was thinking. It, it's a difficult one. I mean, Alistair Cook talks about he opened with Sam Robson for a while, Middlesex opening back. And he remembers the occasion, I think it was at the Oval, that they were just about to go out to bat together. And I was doing a third man piece on Sam Robson getting bowled a lot. And Sam Robson was there in the dressing room looking up at the monitor, the TV. And even though they had the sound down, he looked at all his dismissals. And Cookie thought, right, then, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. (laughs) Let them do what they're doing and let's go out and bat. You know, don't, don't let them... It's the hardest thing you play and then suddenly idiots like me or whoever, Keezy or whoever, analysing your technique to pieces and then you start second-guessing yourself. Yeah, I think you've just got to, it seems, find what works for you. So for you, you read to sort of enhance you and prove you wrong. I know Johnny Bairstow reads what Martin says and reacts to that and some just kind of block it out. And Cook is a very good example of someone who just knows what he's good at Cook had four or five shots. You know, he'd have a cut, he'd have a pull, he'd have a clip off his hip, he'd have a nerdle. That was Alistair Cook. He did pretty well okay with all those shots. He never really changed his game that much. He didn't listen to people, didn't worry about falling over, things like that. He was very good at just knowing what he was good good at and stuck to that game plan. So on the current side, current crop, Mo and Ali's just won the IPL with Chennai um, before the, the World T20, um, which is exciting for him and for England. But he won't be playing in the Ashes because he's now retired from Test cricket. 
what's the legacy of Mo and Ali, do you think, as someone who's broadcasted throughout his career? I mean, the two things that immediately spring to mind. One, what fabulous player he was to watch, as in there would be shots he played where you just went, oh, wow. There was a shot he played at the Oval against uh, India last summer, last test he played, cover drive, and the combox went, oh, no. And you'll even see it now, some of the IPL shots he played. You go on Twitter, and there's sort of Mo gifts that just pop up of how brilliant some of the shots, how elegant he is. He probably underachieved as a batsman for all the talent that he had. I'm talking test match and red ball cricket, and probably overachieved as a bowler. But take nothing, I think he was, what, the third highest wicket taker for England as a spinner, um, which is phenomenal, really. So he ended up a very, very good all-round cricketer. And, you know, we cover sport because of that, the highs and lows. And Mo encapsulated that perfectly. He would play the shot of the day. And like at the Oval, the next ball, he'll try and slog sweep Jadeja for six and get out. And that sums up Mo. He frustrates fans he frustrated himself you'd speak to him honestly he'd be so honest and so humble at the end of the day and he'll go yeah I had a brain fade and <clears throat> I can't stop having these brain fades but he's such a humble honest guy um, but on the other side of that <clears throat> more importantly I'd say is what he you know as a British Muslim a British Asian as a role model what he's done the way he's carried himself the way he's behaved the way he's been part of that England team, the way the England team have looked after him, you know, the classic moment when there's champagne to be sprayed around because Moeen and Adil's face, they'll move out the way and then Cookie will call them in. No, we're not doing a team photo without Mo or Adil. So <clears throat> how important he's been as a role model. There will be British Asian boys and girls out there now playing cricket and I'm sure there will be some ending up as professional cricketers, if not already, because of Mo and Ali. Uh, and he's been a great role model and hopefully he'll continue on the white ball side for a while. And yeah, I was speaking to Chris Benjamin a couple of weeks ago, who made his sort of debut season this year for the Birmingham Phoenix. He said Mo and Ali, just a role model in every sense. Um, and one of the funniest guys around as well. Yeah, I bet he said he was he blooming liked him as well. You look at that yeah. England team, the England team loved Mo. You know, they absolutely love him. So he's a very popular member of that team, of any team. Do you think he suffered from just being moved around? Do you think that they should have established him in the batting order? He always said that he was a batsman who bowled and they always viewed him as a bowler who could bat blooming well as well. Yeah. Do you, do you think he's a victim of, of that? He is, but he's a victim of that because of the brain fades as well. So... You know, he is definitely back from one to nine, I think, in test match cricket. And he did get shuffled around and he did get different roles and suddenly back in and out, he's in and out. Um, but, um, but also he would admit that at times he would be given a role and he'd do it well for a while and then he'd have a brain fade and then um, he'd find another different position. So uh, his batting would be what would frustrate him the most because he was so talented or is so talented. I think it's kind of similar in a sense to Johnny Bairstow, who's, who's never nailed down a slot, but he's one of the most talented cricketers we've ever seen as, as white ball cricket shows. But as you said, I think you're, you're moved around because you yourself haven't established a place in the side. So it really is down to you whether you get moved around or not. 
yeah, um, with both of those, they're both good examples of that, Johnny. I think Johnny, with his keeping, I think it was a bit harsh to take the gloves away from him. I think he was keeping pretty well. Um, I think that's what, you know, will upset him most. He's very proud of the keeping side of the game. And it's a different mindset when you're just a batsman. When you're just a batter, there's a pressure of two low scores and you're out of the side. So, um, but, you know, like Bumble, Bumble's a pretty good judge of a cricketer and Bumble would have Johnny Bairstow in his top five red ball batters in the country. And we might see that in the Ashes. Let's hope so, yeah. And, and on the Ashes, you look at the squad that's just been picked as a motorbike just goes past, very thankful. Um, and uh, what do you see in that Ashes squad? There's no Jofra, there's no Stokes. Um, who knows what will happen, but the priority is that he gets better and, and he's well and he's looked after uh, as a human being. Um, but yeah, do England have a chance in Australia? History tells you not much of a chance. I think in the last 10 tests out there, England have lost 9-0. So history is usually a, a pretty good indicator of the, of the future. I would say this Australian side are vulnerable. Uh, they have Labashane and Smith as their two world-class players. Warner's form, having been broaded and archered, obviously no archer this time, but broad to Warner is always an intriguing contest to me. Uh, so they're a bit short on batters. I think their captain's under a bit of pressure. Their coach, I like their coach, Justin Langer. I'd love to play for Justin, but I think he's under a bit of pressure. So there are cracks there to open up, but you need to be, it's, yeah. I focus on the bowling in as much as I do think you need pace in Australia. And then without Archer, um, they're without Stone. Uh, Wood is become, going to become a very big player for them. Um, but I think if you put that to Broad, actually, Broad made a good point in the summer. When they did win, if you look at the template of 2010-11 with Strauss, what they did was get first innings runs and big runs with Cook, Strauss, Trot, Bell, Peterson, Pryor. You know, that was the template. Get massive. If you get 350 with the Duke's ball in England in the first innings, you will win nine out of ten. You get 350 in Australia with a Kookaburra ball, you lose seven out of 10 games. Yeah. And, and they didn't have lightning pace on that tour. They just got no, they massive runs. What's yeah, the they, they've of... yeah, changed on. their plan a bit, haven't they? They've sort of gone for accuracy now. Chris Silverwood in the press conference, when we're going to go for accuracy, their plan a year ago was going to go and hit them with pace. But because of the lack of pace a little bit, they're going, accurate, they're going with... Uh, trying to dry them up and, 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 and bore them out. We shall see. And Joe Root is the best batsman in the world at, at this point. Who do you think could be England's second top scorer in the Ashes if, if Root delivers? That's a very good question that I haven't even thought about. I would say, and I've, I've always liked David Milan, actually. <clears throat> I think his game is suited to Australia. I think he plays the ball above his waist well. Um, the youngsters have to, it's a good time for the youngsters to deliver and they're not young anymore. The likes of Pope Lawrence Crawley, you know, you go back to how we started this podcast about our era, how you two failures and you're out the side. Those guys have been given a good long run uh, and they need, Australia is a great place to bat, brilliant place to bat, pitches, nets, everything, seeing everything. Um, but David Milan, I think, has got, got the game to get runs in Australia. So what's your 11 for Brisbane? Can I ask that? I'm trying to work out the first World T20 side. Um, <laughs> same three that 
is that um, Hamid and Burns and Milan root four, uh, Bearstow five, Pope six, Butler seven, uh, Wokes eight, Ollie Robinson nine. Um, you need another seamer, don't you? Leach ten, and another seamer. Anderson. Yeah. <laughs> I've nearly forgot Jimmy Anderson. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It depends on conditions. They may, they were going to start in Brisbane. They may start in Sydney now because of quarantine rules. Who knows? But, you know, the bowling, getting a, a bowling attack, they may even leave a spinner out. You yeah. know, they may go all pace. So who knows? Yeah, who knows? I really hope Ollie Robinson has a really good tour because he yeah. lifted up in England. Um, but he's he's absolutely suited for those conditions. It'll be really interesting to see how he translates into Australia. But for the T20 World Cup then, Joe Root is not in the squad. He hasn't been in that squad for a while. But in the last World T20, I think he was top run scorer. But it's clear Morgan's owning that decision again. It's another big call and, and Morgan's going Milan at three. But would you have had Root in these conditions with, with spin being so key? Would Root have been a real asset in that squad, just as an option? Yeah, but the problem is you have to be loyal to the ones that, you know, Milan has been quite brilliant over the last year or two, so you can't suddenly change that. I mean, it's a different game now, and as much as there's so many white ball names, uh, you know, Livingston has burst on the scene. So Root has just found himself, you know, sometimes you're a better player when you're out of the side because people came in and messed up. And then you'd get back in. With this white ball side, if you're out the side, people are coming in like Livingston, like Milan in the last couple of years and have just grabbed their place. And we haven't even talked that much about Hales or, you know, there are so many good white ball cricketers out there. Uh, I see Joe has made himself available for the auction for the IPL. So um, he obviously still believes he's a something to do in, in, in T20 cricket. So Joe Root is a world-class player in any format. And is he a world-class captain? Because he's got a brilliant win ratio if you compare him to other captains. What kind of defines Joe Root's era of captaincy? Is this Ashes going to determine the bulk of his legacy? How do you see Joe Root as, a, as an England yeah, captain? I'm afraid it is the way. It probably shouldn't be the way, but you end up as an England captain being judged on your Ashes record. Um, you know That's why Strauss winning in 2010-11 for me was one of the great captaincy um, success stories I've ever known, going out there and winning like he did. Born in 2005, gave us the greatest series we've ever seen. So as an England captain, you're probably judged on your captaincy record. Um, I think Joe, in the last couple of years, has captained with one hand tied behind his back. I think often Owen has got the side he's wanted and uh, Joe's had to put up with rotation and rest and bubbles and uh, everything else that's gone on with that. So he is statistically England's most successful captain. He's won more tests than anyone else. Uh, he's a thoroughly decent lad. He's a real great role model for our game. You couldn't think of a better role model. I couldn't think of a better person to be England captain than Joe Root, to be honest. Everything he does, he does in a very classy sort of way. And as a captain, you don't tick every box. You, don't, you may not be tactically as you know, as well equipped as Vaughan or have the man management skills of a Brealey or whatever. But Joe Root still brings a lot to the England captaincy, but he will be judged again on the, on the months that lie ahead in Australia. It feels like a really positive 
team environment that Joe Roots kind of forefronted. I think sort of Jonathan Trott and Marcus Roscothic being in and around that setup, I think in terms of management and rest and rotation, I think it just feels like players are, are really looked after and invested in as, as people much more than say, even sort of 2014, 15, when you've got that edge documentary with, with players just saying, look, I'm out on my feet and not really being treated as, as people, just as cricketers. Yeah, I think so. And that, you know, that's what's come across in the last few months with bubbles. And, you know, you, you have to, 18 tests, isn't it, they've played since the start of this pandemic, which is more than anyone else. I think Australia have only played four and they're all at home. Um, so I think I, I, we're, I'm very proud of our team, the way they've gone about it. Bubbles are a nightmare, man. I've got to do six days here. And it's six days. It's easy. It's in a hotel room. But England players have done two weeks here, a week there, six days here, two weeks there, all with young family. They don't see their families. And so easy. Such a cliched line. You know, I'd, I'd give my right arm or they're well paid for it or you choose to do it. You're playing for England. That doesn't make a hotel room any easier. It doesn't make two weeks quarantine any easier. It doesn't make not seeing your family for three months any easier. So you're right. I think there's a really good environment with Silverwood, Root, uh, Thorpe, Triscothic, Collingwood, Trot, people like that involved. Giles, is, you know, understands the game very well. So I think there's some good people around. They may need someone occasionally in, in test match cricket just to give them a kick up the backside when they keep finding themselves 20 for three. They may need someone tough to just say, come on, lads, this this is not good enough, but they're generally good guys. <clears throat> and just a slightly different point with Morgan. I remember you talking uh, as, as a Sky team about kind of cultural values and sort of buzzwords, like Morgan uses sort of courage, unity and respect. And I remember you and Atherton kind of wincing at that a bit and thinking, oh, this is, this is a load of rubbish. But it, it's, clearly, it's clearly kind of something that Morgan and Root really do live by. Do you think that's kind of... I just find that really interesting, that, that contrast, really. Is that a generational thing? Like, Yeah, it's a little bit of a generational thing, really. I mean, you know, your, your team and your teammates, uh, you know about them in those difficult situations. You know, not just in and around a team environment. You find out who your teammates are around about two o'clock in a, in a bar or a nightclub somewhere where you've stuck them in in Brisbane and they're 400 for two or whatever, you know that's when your team and your teammates stick up for you or put the knife in or whatever. So you pretty much realise, but I, it's, a, it's a generational thing in our day. It used to just be, we'll sort this out amongst ourselves, the rows that were in the dressing room, like that Essex side. You know, you talk to Michael Holding about the West Indies side. Most of that West Indies side hated each other, fought with each other, but you'd never get it when they got on what Clive Lloyd did to him and Viv Richards, that, those group of islands that they got playing as one nation was just phenomenal. So that's where leadership and those two you mentioned are great, great leaders. I'd love to play for those two, Morgan and Root. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I just wanted to ask you, we're about to wrap up, but as a leader who, who's, who's led aside at a top level and as a sports fan, I know you're a big Arsenal fan, which, <laughs> which a burden I share, it's very painful a lot of the time. Um, but Arsenal, it's often levelled at them by the likes of Roy Keane, that Arsenal have always, in the later Wenger years and since then, have lacked a bit of a backbone, lacked kind of leadership and players in the dressing room who can, as you said, give a kick up the backside. How do you watch Arsenal from, from your experience of 
Yeah, that, that goes back to what we said earlier about quality as well. You know, you, you need quality. It's all well and good people saying, oh, well, who are the leaders? But who, who's the quality in this side? Where's the back four that the Arsenal, you know, under George Graham, you know, used to, used to find impossible to break down? Or Then you had with that, you'd have Tony Adams, the leader or whoever, Steve Bold. You'd have that within that spine. But you need the quality first and then work out the leaders within that. So uh, football's different for me. And you know, cricket, I, I never look at football and see who's wearing the armband or whatever, you know. And they, when they pass it from one to the other, when they go off the field, you know, the captain of a cricket team is, is a unique thing, actually. It's a team game. But, and I might be overplaying the role here, but you only have to look at that IPL final that just finished in Dhoni and Morgan. They are serial winners in white ball cricket. And yet again, there they are in an IPL final coming off against each other. So it's a funny thing. In cricket, more than any other sport, the captain seems to be a vital cog in the direction that the team are going. So um, more than football, I'd say. Arsenal need, Arsenal need some quality players and then some leaders within that. Right, a couple of quick fires. To finish off, cool. um, who's the best bowler you ever captained? Best bowler I ever captained, the one I loved captaining, Darren Goff, would run through a brick, brick wall for you. Biggest heart in the world, loved a camera, never had straight stage fright. The bigger the game, the more Goff he stood up. Brilliant, brilliant lad. Strictly Come Dancing, prove yeah. that. Um, yeah. What's your best common, commentary moment, the most memorable? Uh, that's, for, that's for others to say, but I can say, and I've Two in one year was obviously the World Cup final, which was just unbelievable, the, the chaos that evening. But for me, the best day's cricket I've ever witnessed was Ben Stokes at Headingley. I have never, when I sat down in that chair with Ricky Ponting, if someone had said to me, Stokes would be there at the end with Leach winning this game, I'd have just laughed. What Ben did that day at Headingley, that was the greatest innings I have ever witnessed. And it was just like a pleasure and Ricky was brilliant that day, absolutely brilliant. It was a pleasure to be able to sort of sit there and watch that from the commentary box. If you were stuck on a desert island with one <laughs> member of the Sky commentary not, team. Not Rob Key. The end. <laughs> uh, one member, Bumble. If you're on a desert island, you'd want someone to make, me, make you laugh. And Bumble, he doesn't. He can walk into a room, and he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to say anything, and I'll be laughing at Bumble. Brilliant! Oh, that's such good news. Um, yeah. Next question. Oh, that's made me laugh just thinking about that. Um, <laughs> a young talent who hasn't played for England yet, who will go on to score five thousand plus runs in Test cricket. Oh my gosh! A young talent. Uh, I saw Rob Yates this year um, play really well. The lad Haynes, is it, at Sussex? I've not seen him in the flesh. I don't like bigging up people that I've not seen in the flesh. So uh, I have seen Yates and he played well and the lad Haynes down at, um, down at Sussex. What will the final Ashes score be in the series? 3-1. We won't see who. Just three one. There you go. That's good. We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Um, where will Arsenal finish this season? Mid-table mediocrity. And finally, uh, one Phil Tufnell story, please. 
I'm Phil, oh my gosh, how many Phil Tufnell stories? No, no, hey, he, I mean, they're all going, when the change, tell, tell you about a change of era when it went from fit, non-fitness to fitness, the non-fitness area that Cat grew up in and Gucci tried to change it around and we're in the West Indies and we'd bowl for three hours in the nets in Antigua or something and Cat was down on his feet and Gucci turned to him and said, come on, Cat, we're going on a three-mile run, me and you. And Tuffers just turned to the England captain and went, if you ever find a batter that hits it three miles, I'll go on a three-mile run with you. Until that day, I'm going back to the hotel for a beer and a fag. And that, that, that was what our left-arm spinner said to our England captain. <laughs> he was another good man, Tufnell. I like Tufnell. Love captaining Tufnell. <laughs> That's it. Uh... Mate, thank you so much. I hope no you that we've we've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, have a really good rest of quarantine. Um, all the best for the coming tournament. What are you doing to prep for for this tournament? As a I mean, I mean, after this never ending podcast, I've only like got three days left now. To be honest, uh, I've lost uh, track of what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> he rang me, said, "Can we do half an hour? We've done like three days. So thanks for having half my quarantine done." and enjoy Durham University it's a great spot cheers buddy thank you so much wow that was nuts thank you very much for listening to what was such a memorable interview and episode on heads and tails thanks so much to NASA for being kind enough to chat so extensively and shed really incredible light on leadership and the England dressing room and players past and present interspersed with hilarious tales of life on tour and behind the mic. A true gent. What an honour. A massive thanks to our co-producer Al Atkinson for his incredible work on this episode. For more content like this, check out the library that is Purple Radio On Demand on all podcasting platforms. On which you can also find the Rising Stars podcast where I interview young cricketing Tyro and former Durham student of this year, Chris Benjamin in a show that has just been nominated for Best Interview at the Student Radio Awards this November, supported by Global and BBC Sounds. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, goodbye. downloading this purple radio podcast for more great content and to listen live head to purpleradio.co.uk